there are certainly companies that are exposed to pieces of the economy or the market that are not clicking on all cylinders right now, clearly. But there's some that are. And in many cases, you had a pretty wide, wide ranging baby with the bathwater dynamic where everything got smoked pretty hard. And in some cases, that was deserved. In some cases, those companies have had no negative revisions in consensus estimates for their businesses year to date. In some cases, those revisions have actually been higher. The stocks have gotten, in some examples, cut in half. Welcome to the latest installment of Currently, the podcast that brings you the week's current events in finance, business, and technology with insight from the experts. Your host is Ryan Pallotta, and today he's talking with Jose Torres. Jose is the Chief Investment Officer at LaCoya Capital Management, a fund that focuses on growth technology companies. Before founding LaCoya, Jose was at the legendary SAC, Turbion, and Cyprus Funds. In our talk, Jose tells us how his background as a software engineer informed his specialization in tech. He tells us why he remains positive on the tech space, explaining how great companies can power through macro messiness. He goes on to detail why he's bullish on Broadcom and explains why Salesforce is a great example of a tech company whose stock price doesn't reflect its performance. The Prometheus app is brimming with insights from sector specialists like Jose. With Prometheus, you can expand your knowledge by interacting with top investment professionals and access the funds they manage more easily than ever before. Go to our website, prometheusalts.com, and get started today. And now, enjoy our talk with Jose Torres. Jose, I'm so happy to have you with us. You do such a great job being such an expert in your field, and specifically technology and growth stocks. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your career at SAC, at Turbion Capital, at Cyprus, a little bit about how you focused so you know, intuitively in some of these areas of technology stocks. Sure. So I've... Um I've covered technology for basically the entirety of my career. I have an undergraduate degree in computer science, um, as I've mentioned, and uh, was actually a software engineer right out of undergrad at a big investment bank um, before pivoting more to traditional finance, investment banking, private equity, and then moved to the public buy side um, and have been on the public buy side for you know almost 15 years at a couple firms, um, including the ones you mentioned. Um, and so I am and you know certainly a specialist. I've been covering the space for a long time um, and pretty pretty wide ranging perspective. I've covered uh, what I would characterize as global technology. So obviously, while there's a lot of stuff in North America, all the big companies that you're aware of, you know, tech's a pretty big place globally, particularly in Asia. And mm-hmm. so I've been very fortunate to have a lot of experience covering technology in a global sense, quite literally. So virtually all major verticals, enterprise software, enterprise hardware, semiconductors, internet, business services, um, communications equipment, um, across all major geographies. So North America, Europe, Asia. I've actually spent a uh, shocking amount of time in Asia, mm-hmm. particularly many years ago in places like Taiwan and South Korea and Japan. Um, you know, a lot of the global te- te- you know, technology supply chain is based over there, obviously. So mm-hmm. I've kind of seen and done a lot in technology over my um, time covering it. Um, well, I love when yeah. somebody's able to really specify and be good at something specific. And how do you think that has helped you in your career you know, at LaCoya now, your firm that you run today, and at some of the previous firms that you've been at? So um, technology is certainly a pretty, at least historically, pretty idiosyncratic sector, right? Um, there are certainly um, cyclical subsectors, say semiconductors, for example, and some of the semiconductor supply chain stuff 
that is more classically cyclical. But for the most part, the bulk of technology tends to be pretty idiosyncratic, i.e. it's kind of doing its own thing. Um, bit of an ironic comment, given everything going on in the world uh, mm -hmm. the last six or seven months that we're all aware of, um, you know, interest rates and a lot of the market volatility and all this other stuff. But um, technology is pretty idiosyncratic. And so at least historically, my personal perspective was lots of ways to skin the cat, obviously. But for me, um, some of the nomenclature and technicalness of the space can be a little difficult to understand what some of the companies do. Obviously, everyone knows what an Apple or Netflix does. But when you get into some of the more obscure areas like semiconductor capital equipment or memory or certain areas in you know enterprise software like IT infrastructure, it gets a little complicated pretty fast. Um, and so certainly for me, having a pretty extended and, and longstanding background in the space made just getting up to speed, for example, on a new space or sort of sub vertical like one of those, just a lot easier, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd probably be remiss if I didn't say, having done technology for a long time, and even being a technologist, if you will, pre moving to the public buy side, um, probably not surprising for you to hear that it was always something that I was always you know, passionate about and personally enjoyed, right? Mm -hmm. So going through some of the more obscure stuff, um, you know, filings and getting up to speed on new technology, some of these are cool, right? Everyone agrees something like an Apple or a Netflix or, you know, Spotify do things that we all sort of use and touch every day. Some of these other areas are a lot more obscure, right? Um, you know, you know, someone yeah. might say it's like, you know, watching paint dry going through a 10 K for some of these more obscure technology companies. So certainly having an innate interest in the space, plus having a lot of experience in the space may, may getting up to speed on a lot of these more obscure names, a lot more doable. Yeah. For me. Well, I'll leave the 10 Ks up to you. I'm glad that I've never had to read one in my life. Um, but the world seems to be ending. Everyone's lost everything. It's over. Right. <laughs> Crypto's done. Tech's done. Growth's all all done. It's all it's all over. So you're the perfect sure. person to talk to about the ending of technology stocks. They've lost almost like 70 to 80%, some of them. Can you just talk a little bit about are they oversold right now? Why is there so much panic? And where do we go from here? Sure. So um, I'll start by saying, you know, I, my, my investment process and my career is I'm a bottoms up, you know, stock picker, single stock picker, I'm a bottoms up investment analyst, right? So while obviously I have views and am attenuated to what's going on, you know, from a macro standpoint, my expertise is not in calling market tops or bottoms, interest rate direction, currency movements, et cetera, et cetera, all of which clearly have, have been you know, relevant this year, of course, right? So mm -hmm. I'll just start with level selling, level selling that. What I would say is that, um, I'm actually, this may surprise you, maybe I'll be one of the few people you talk to right you know, these days that actually would say this. I'm actually extremely constructive and positive on the space right now. Um, and a lot of that is because, um, start with sort of what's happened, um, a condensed version of it is, is that, like you said, there's been enormous damage that has happened, arguably in a pretty short period of time, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the NASDAQ, if I'm not mistaken, peaked sort of in late November. Right, so we are a good six months into this uh, broader in, broader equity indices too, but the Nasdaq in particular, since we're focusing on technology, you, has seen you know some pretty almost historic levels of damage in a, admittedly pretty short period of time, right? Five or six months, right? Like you cited, you know, if the Nasdaq mm -hmm. is down, you know, thirty to thirty-five percent, that means to your point, individual stocks are down, you know, substantially more than that in many cases, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we can all think of small caps or SPACs or other um, sort of risky, perceived to be risky names that are down, you know, 2x plus the market, at least, right? 
So mm-hmm. what I would say is maybe the first point is why I'm very constructive right here is that that damage has happened, right? Um, it's obviously been extremely painful for a lot of people. Um, crypto, I'll, I'll, I'll defer from because I'm not really a crypto expert to be clear, although obviously I understand the damage there has been pretty extensive as well. So I think it's important to emphasize as obvious as it sounds, you know, it, it's already happened, right? So can stocks go lower? Can the market go lower? Of course, right? You know, particularly in a bear market or when fundamentals are getting worse, it's certainly possible for things to overshoot to the downside. They can overshoot reasonable valuation levels to unreasonably low valuation levels for some unknown period of time, of course. But enormous damage has been done, right? Um, mm. And arguably a lot faster than I think most people would have would have perceived it to be possible. So to start by saying the obvious, to look sort of level set kind of now and going forward, you've had enormous amounts of damage done and a lot of weakness and or company level weakness or, or perceived to come weakness has been priced into a lot of stocks, right? So, you know, important rule, obviously, of public investing is that stocks look forward. They certainly don't look backwards, right? So while mm-hmm. it's important to understand and, you know, think through what's happened here, a lot of what's sort of generally knowable, um, to some extent, is priced into stocks. Of course, things can get worse. Of course, there could be macro boogeymen. Of course, any of the macro issues that people are concerned about, say Russia and Ukraine, for example, could flare up and get worse, right? And we can come up with an unlimited number of theoretically, you know, tail risk macro scenarios, right? But mm-hmm. in terms of discussing whether it's you know rate increases year to date, FX volatility. The initial shock of you know Russia invading Ukraine, et cetera, it's kind of already happened, right? Yeah. And so you know investing is about looking forward and looking to the future, especially in technology. And so um, I think it's important to start with, um, unless you think the stock market and stocks are going to go to zero, which seems reasonably unlikely, right? At some point, a lot of damage has been discounted or priced in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. Does that, as, as a sort of starting point, that does that kind of make sense or you have questions on that? That's that, that's obviously my opinion, right? But totally makes I think sense. it's important and to realize that like you have stocks down, like you said, in many cases, 70, 80% in a pretty short yeah. period of time. So um, a lot of damage has been done. So at some point, um, things will stabilize. Um, that will happen when, in all likelihood, if and when it happens, it will happen when the headlines are pretty ugly. It's mm-hmm. not going to happen. You know, as someone who is invests and looks forward, I have to sort of think through um, mental models for what what could happen going forward. Obviously, I don't know for sure what's going to happen, right? Um, yeah. But um, well, just you yesterday have we had. Um, done. Go ahead. I was going to say just, just yesterday we saw Jamie Dimon of Chase Bank say that there was a hurricane about to happen right. to the American economy. You know, in the next right. twelve to eighteen months. Um, you know, and this obviously would affect growth and technology stocks. Sure. Why do you think someone like him is so pessimistic and depressing about what's potentially going to happen here? Yeah, and- I noticed that comment too. Um, so I, again, I, I don't cover Chase, the stock, and I don't cover mm-hmm. financials. Um, I obviously, like like everyone, have a you know. I think he was maybe referring to the broader economy and not just his own his own company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm just I'm just commenting by saying, for example, I, I didn't listen to the entire. He, mm-hmm. he was speaking at a, um, I believe, a sell side conference in New York or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like a lot of people, I saw I saw the headlines after the fact, um, but I didn't listen to the whole webcast, or I, I don't I don't cover the stock per se. Although, I, frankly, it was a little interesting because, if I'm not mistaken, about a week prior, I think at J.P. Morgan's analyst day, which I think was the 23rd of May, 
hmm. um, not mistaken. He sounded quite the opposite, actually. Um, yeah. He had some, you know, again, I don't, I don't cover the stocks, so I don't want to mischaracterize it, but something <laughs> to the effect of the U.S. consumer is extremely strong, balance sheets are very strong. It was actually quite the opposite. So um, I mentioned that because it, I'm not 100% sure if that seeming reversal barely a week later, which is a pretty short period of time, um, mm. was um, him necessarily being incrementally negative on, say, things that had transpired over the previous week or... Um, you know, I, I think it, taking at face value, he made some comments that, um, you know, we all know the Fed has signaled they're going to raise rates pretty contiguously through at least year end. Everyone feels the pinch of inflation every day when they go to the grocery store and fill up their car. Um, I think everyone's pretty frustrated with it, obviously, the absolute levels of, of course. So I think, um, you know, the Fed is has been very fairly transparent. They want inflation to come down pretty dramatically. So I think his point, if I'm not mistaken, was there are risks associated with some of the policies um, in terms of you know decremental growth to the run rate of the economy associated with what the Fed is going to be doing going mm -hmm. forward. That being said, um, again, back to my first point, um, which is still kind of looking backward, but we're sort of covering this, um, enormous damage has been done. So it's not like stocks are at all-time highs, valuations are at all-time highs. Um, that, that there's really that much of a surprise that the Fed's going to be raising rates. I mean, everyone knows it. You know it. I know mm -hmm. it. My mom knows it. My sister knows it. Pretty much everyone who's even seen a newspaper um, or read the news at any point this year is aware of it um, to some extent. So can those actions incrementally weaken the U.S. economy beyond the point that people are, are already underwriting? Of course. Mm -hmm. And that's where this is difficult. So there are always downside risks. Yeah. But the point is, is that you know, a lot of stocks have discounted a lot of bad news. Um, in many cases in technology, um, to maybe begin to look forward a little bit more, um, in many cases, those stocks that have been either halved or, or come down dramatically year to date or say since November, um, have had actually no commensurate reduction in their forward earnings revisions whatsoever. So there are certainly companies that are, um, you know, dealing with a lot of headwinds and the execution hasn't been crisp or they're levered to pockets of the economy, say um, some of the lockdowns, for example. Um, mm -hmm. um, Zoom and Peloton were two very famous stocks, as you're aware, that had big runs during the COVID lockdowns and then deflated pretty dramatically over the subsequent year. Right. So there are certainly companies that are exposed to pieces of the economy or the market that are not clicking on all cylinders right now, clearly. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's some that are. Right, and in many cases, you had a pretty, pretty wide, wide-ranging baby with the bathwater dynamic, where everything got, you know, smoked pretty hard. And in some cases, that was deserved. In some cases, those companies have had no negative revisions in consensus estimates for their businesses year to date. In some cases, those revisions have actually been higher. And the stocks have gotten, in some examples, cut in half. Right. So I think it's important to, at this point, begin to disaggregate. Okay, damage was done. The NASDAQ dropped 30, something like that, plus or minus. A lot of stocks were down 2x that or more. Now let's begin to go through the rubble here and figure out who is exposed to these things that probably have more headwinds than tailwinds in the short to medium term and some businesses that are positioned to be the opposite. Right. Well, that, that kind of leads into my next question was how do you, you yourself and you know your firm, how do you dig through the rubble to look for some of these opportunities? And historically, it might be it might be in, important to not look so much at inflated prices that were, you know, 52 weeks ago, 
That's right. You know, when you saw certain stocks, you know, at certain prices and look where they can potentially go from here. How do you dig through the rubble to find these names? And then how do you look at and not not confuse yourself with where they were and where they might go? For example, you saw Shopify at twelve hundred dollars, now it's sure. at like three hundred and something dollars. Sure. Um, is it still a twelve hundred dollar stock or was that an inflated number because of the bubble that we're in post COVID? Um, you know, how do you personally look at this stuff? So I, I say there's probably two things that jump out of me. Um, there's, there's lots of ways, again, obviously to skinny cat, but there's what works for, for, for me and for us. And what I would say is that um, there's two things that jump out of me. One is, is that um, historical valuation bands for a lot of the metrics that matter for the companies that I'm involved with, say, you know, revenue or EV to revenue, EV to EBITDA, price to earnings, price to free cash flow. So a lot of the more traditional stuff, um, you know, I tend to, historically, you know, either before I get involved or when I'm involved, my names have a reasonably acute sense of mm. where, you know, current um, forward in this case, um, valuations are relative to history, right? So um, to your point, um, I don't have a strong view on Shopify, but if I use say enterprise software names as, as an example, clearly um, with the benefit of hindsight, um, the valuation levels for that group were at a pretty elevated basis relative to historical uh, levels mm you know, throughout the fall and even early in the year and, and arguably even as recently as, you know, a, a few months ago, say kind of April, maybe early May. Right. Um, so, I mean, to use sort of a hypothetical example, if, if an enterprise software stock historically traded between, you know, five and 10 times forward set revenue and was it 25 times in Q4 or 20 times in, you know, Q1 of this year, that's pretty elevated. Right. Um, we mm -hmm. can debate the merits of that stock. We can debate, whether or not um, in that in that case they're you know executing particularly well and they probably were to get an elevation level um, to, of that magnitude, but that would be an example of a valuation that's extremely aberrant from a historical perspective, right? Um, you know, no one, everyone knows you don't really want to short on valuation per se, but certainly when things get to extremes like that, um, you know, the odds of certainly multiple expansion from those levels are you know pr pretty low to zero. Um, and the symmetry to the downside of the valuation is, is pretty high, right? Again, no one could have known exactly necessarily where it would go or where it troughs. But the point is, is like, you know, aberrance or reasonableness of valuation relative to the stock's history is certainly a reasonable starting point to say, um, even if it's from just a, a simple filtering standpoint, this is historically expensive or historically cheap or historically you know, reasonable, for example. Um, that's obviously more relevant for the non-recent IPOs, businesses that have had an operating mm -hmm. history going back several years, for example. The second thing I would say is that um, having, um, I mentioned earlier, um, while we look at things tops down, ultimately I invest bottoms up. I'm a stock picker, right? I mm -hmm. analyze companies and um, I tend to be a, a, a stickler for, you know, bottoms up financial models. So for example, for all the, all the companies that I look at, I'm always, I always have my, I have my own personal financial model of the business. Mm -hmm. um, and um, part of that modeling process is establishing, do I have a variant view, for example, versus consensus estimates going forward, right? So if consensus says XYZ company is going to do $10 of earnings next year, you know, if I'm only getting $10.20, maybe that's not very interesting. But if I'm getting $15 or $14, that's interesting, right? So yeah. I tend to be a bit of a stickler for um, can... The company, basically, it's a proxy for significantly outperform Wall Street consensus estimates, right? All else equal, right? Um, a business that can meaningfully cause upward revisions 
to its stock, to its uh, earnings estimates, for example, in the case of a long or obviously mm -hmm. vice versa in the case of a short, um, may, I emphasize the word, may have an ability to sort of power through the macro, right? Um, mm -hmm. If a company is consistently beating and raising to a magnitude above consensus, in the case of a long, um, even more so if it's at a reasonable valuation, then that's maybe not a hedge per se, but certainly a way to help that stock or for that stock to sort of help itself power through any sort of top down macro kind of messiness. Does that kind of make sense? Totally makes sense. And obviously this is your disclaimer. This is not financial advice. This is purely educational. We're just trying to <laughs> give, give some fun to the people. You're, you say that you're a stock picker. Is there any names that you're excited about right now or names that you're maybe pessimistic about in the opposite way? Are you going to go short DWAC, Truth Social? What are, what are you excited about short or long wise? Um, so uh, DWAC is a SPAC, as you're aware. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I have not myself trapped in SPACs, so I can't comment on that or SPACs in general. Um, sort of interesting, we're having this conversation about a week after Avago, which is a multi-hundred billion dollar semiconductor conglomerate, actually announced the acquisition of VMware. So VMware, is, you may have heard of it, very large sort of legacy enterprise software company. Um, Avago is a semiconductor conglomerate that um, was originally spun out um, of Hewlett Packard, you know, almost two decades ago, and was sort of sponsored by private equity, ran a bit of a uh, focused roll-up strategy, and is led by probably one of the most talented capital allocators, um, M&A driven CEOs that I've ever encountered in my life, uh, an executive by the name of Hawk Tan, and um, has created enormous equity value in the public markets over the last decade plus doing a couple oh, wow. of really high profile, large semiconductor deals. Um, at one point, he almost bought Qualcomm uh, that eventually no got way. blocked by the FTC a couple of years ago. Mm. Uh, but prior to that, he'd run a very successful strategy, pivoted the strategy a couple of years ago, uh, to begin acquiring, you know, in the company's perspective, very undervalued mature enterprise software assets. So it's a bit of a strategy change from semis to software, but um, with a very keen eye for um, equity value, returns on capital, um, and generating efficiencies from businesses that in many cases um, maybe have decelerated a little bit and have bloated cost structures, but certainly have a lot of embedded equity value and finding a way to release that equity value. Um, and so about a week ago, he announced the acquisition of VMware, which is, you know, been around for a while, pretty large deal. I think it was north of, you know, almost $60 billion. I think it's like the second largest tech deal ever announced. I'm not sure how the Qualcomm deal, Qualcomm was, I think over a hundred or something like that, that it obviously didn't happen, but it's effectively one of the largest technology M&A deals ever announced. Um, and so it's sort of interesting, by the way, that he's announced that deal in the middle of this sort of messy tech storm. Right. Um, so you have an example of an executive that, well, obviously that deal wouldn't close for, you know, several months uh, because these things take time for regulatory mm. approvals. Um, he's certainly putting his money where his mouth is in terms of making a very large financial bet on a very large asset that obviously will take a lot of time and energy to integrate uh, because he believes it can generate, you know, pretty substantial equity value accretion to to his company, Avago. Um, so I, I bring up Avago just because it's a little bit timely. Um, that deal just got announced. Um, there's, of course, regulatory risk with that or any large deal um, mm -hmm. so that that could still happen. But you have uh, Abago is actually a, a very large semiconglomerate, like I said, um, probably one of the bigger companies most people have never heard of. Mark Cap's north of $200 billion. Wow. Um, so $200 billion. $200 billion. So it's a, it's, it's a situation where um, it's far from a household name, even though it's sort of large cap. 
Um, How do you think that it's not a household name yet? It's a two hundred billion dollar market cap, which is bigger than. It's a great question. Um, well, semiconductors in general tends to be at least historically seen as sort of a less sexy sector. Um, mm-hmm. You know, beyond maybe one or two high profile companies like an Intel or Qualcomm, most people can't name say the next half dozen semiconductor companies. These businesses are obviously producing sort of the guts of consumer electronics enterprise technology. And so they're, yeah. they're not, you know, most people aren't going to touch their products in a direct sense, right? Um, so it, it tends to be a behind the scenes group. There's also a little bit of a stigma to the group. Um, semiconductors, as I mentioned earlier, tend to be a little bit cyclical. Um, they have their own economic cycles. Um, they have their own cycles akin to economic cycles, although shorter and sometimes a little more volatile. Um, and so they, they tend to not be as simple as an open-ended growth story as your classic, say, internet businesses, for example, or enterprise software businesses that people can look at something like Google and say, okay, I, I understand how internet search has a very long growth tail to it, pretty pretty unadulterated long-term growth tail to it. Um, um, semiconductors have their own economic cycle, and sometimes uh, more growth-oriented investors tend to not be um, as enamored with them because they have those uh, sector-specific um, cycles to them. So um, Avago is just a very interesting company because it was effectively, like I said, it was carved out of, of Hewlett Packard a long time ago. Um, you know, small multi-billion company, and now is north mm-hmm. of two hundred, you know, something billion dollars, probably closing in on two fifty to three hundred billion dollars if he ultimately closes on VMware. So it's it's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, the equity value that they've created basically in plain sight. Yeah. Um, and Crazy. was actually for the vast majority of his operating history accessible to to stock market investors, mm-hmm. right? While it was created in the private markets um, by a large private equity firm, um, the, a lot of the equity value creation in Avago has actually been capturable, if you will, by the average investor in the stock market. Um, and how and have they taken a pretty big hit, like the rest of tech stocks? And do you think that there's a they're trading at a discount right now because of that? So. Um, it, while Avago is really down year to date, it you know for the most part is actually meaningfully outperformed both the mm. SOX, so it's sort of primary index as well as the broader NASDAQ. Uh, some of that's because Avago is seen as uh, a little bit of a slow to medium growth business um, that does do M&A. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's not, it, it's sort of a sort of steady eddy. It, it's sort of seen, rightly or wrongly, as a bit of a sort of steady eddy or semiconductor stock as opposed to something that's a heavily levered to um, you know, a single customer uh, that could be very volatile. So Avago, again, as I mentioned, diversified pretty meaningfully a couple of years ago by moving into enterprise software. Um, and so the business was a semiconductor conglomerate, became about a quarter recurring software um, prior to uh, closing on VMware. That number will actually go to 50%. Um, so it, it's sort of a steady eddy, very profitable business. And so that, as you can imagine, sort of a larger cap that has had historically a, a much more, a much lower vault, m- much more lower volatility earning stream, and has extremely high operating margins and free cash flow as well as a big buyback, has relatively outperformed the indices, even though the stock is down year to date. Um, in terms of, um, I think your second question was around um, was around the stock being inexpensive here. Um, mm. So you know, Avago's you know, call it five hundred seventy-five dollars plus or minus. Um, it's the jury's still out on ultimately what the accretion for the, from the VMware deal will be. Um, you know, again, that deal probably is not scheduled to close for at least six plus months. And so there's no rush here. Um, Avago still has to close that transaction, but, um, it is not difficult for Avago to generate pro forma 
earnings um, for VMware, you know, any you know, in the sort of forty-eight to fifty-dollar range on a five seventy-five stock. So you have a stock that may be trading at, you know, under twelve times uh, pro forma earnings. Again, there's some mm-hmm. ifs there that the deal has to close. Um, it certainly is a large integration, but you have a stock that's trading pretty meaningful discount to the S and P and the SOX no. um, on an earnings stream that, if they can close a deal, will largely be in their control. Huh. I love that you are, have the ability to go after some of these not so sexy, as you put it, names that maybe people aren't so familiar with or aren't household names yet. What about the sexy names? Are you guys looking at anything like the Zooms or Tesla or anything in that people are household names that people are looking at right now? Um, I, not as much, although Zoom is interesting. Um, and I want to sp- talk specifically about Zoom, but I want to talk about that category of names, right? So maybe coming back a little bit to where we started, which was this idea of what happens to tech from here, or why am I, you know, constructive? And while you know, while we're not involved, and I'm not you know, involved, well, I'm not. With regard to Zoom, Zoom is a good proxy for. Um, I mentioned earlier some of the COVID winners, right? So Peloton and mm-hmm. Zoom and some of these stocks that had these enormous runs in 2020, um, and then have had you know pretty significant pullbacks, to say the least, right? To your point, you know, 60. Some of them, especially like the enterprise software companies, like Zoom is kind of an enterprise software company. Yes. Um, they continue going whether we like it or not. With even if COVID is over and done with, we're still going to use them, correct? Regardless, like I can't exactly. imagine so, doing. I can't imagine doing a conference call anymore. So, so like, that's a perfect a segue, number. right? So a lot of these businesses, um, and I, I, I tend to do a lot of enterprise software, a lot of enterprise technology in general. Um, that category of names certainly was in the baby with the bathwater category, right? A lot of those stocks, as you know, are down pretty significantly from their November, December highs, um, you know, meaningfully so. And so what's a little more interesting for me as an investor from an entry point standpoint is a big reason why we are now constructive on technology um, is that the valuations for a lot of these businesses have been reset to pretty reasonable levels, particularly on 2023 estimates, which is not that far away if you think about it, right? You know, it's June now, um, you know, by Labor Day or so, most stocks arguably should be fully valued off of 23 and beyond numbers, right? And so a lot of these stocks, um, like some of these enterprise software names that have come in so much are now at levels that are, you know, arguably much more reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which was certainly not the case, I think, objectively, regardless if you want to, you know, play 2020 hindsight, these valuations were significantly higher to you know, almost you know, nosebleed levels as recently as four or five months ago, right? No, no one rational is arguing that those stocks should have traded there. They did. It is what it is. They've come in pretty dramatically. But again, stocks look forward, right? So, you know, you can look at some of these enterprise software names that have had, for the most part, really no degradation in in estimates year to date. Mm-hmm. It's just the stocks came from such a high valuation. The valuation compression was pretty dramatic. Um, that have had minimal to no change in estimates have had the multiples collapse, right? For the reasons we discussed earlier, um, i.e. the business is sort of doing what it was doing four or five months ago. And it may have been pulled into this COVID winner category. There's a lot of enterprise software names that are now trading, for example, at under 20 times 2023 free cash flow estimates, you know, consensus estimates, right? So to the extent you want to say the market trades sort of mid to high teens, um, some of these names are now getting to valuations where they are comparable to market multiples, right? And versus, you know, astronomically nosebleed levels for the same metric as recently as, you know, five or six months ago. 
right? So that's really not, not true for every stock. There are certainly stocks with negative margins and negative free cash flow. And so for the most part, I'm talking about and focusing here on businesses that have reasonably healthy margins and, and generate quite a bit of free cash flow. Those exist too. And a lot of those got cut in half or more year to date. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of names sort of in that world that are now at either market multiples or modest premiums on, mm -hmm. on free cash flow, not a phantom uh, metric, not on some you know fake number, but on, on free cash flow, real numbers. Um, Could you give me an example of, of what something would be like that you're talking about there? Like what's an enterprise software company that the viewers could like try to get a better idea of what you're talking about? Sure. Um, um, so, or, or businesses say like an example, like salesforce.com, right? So salesforce.com mm -hmm. is actually a pretty topical example because they just reported two nights ago on Monday evening, right? Um, a couple nights ago. And um, salesforce.com, um, you know, going into that earnings print was trading at pretty much I think within maybe a third of a turn of an all-time low on four-year EV to revenue, mm -hmm. right? Something in the order of magnitude of four times, right? Salesforce.com has been publicly traded for a long time, obviously, right? Um, and um, you know, some I mentioned. I remember I mentioned earlier about sort of historical valuation bands, right? And Salesforce is you know something like 15-year low. I'm, I'm rounding here. I'm not from my Bloomberg, obviously, but um, was you know something in the order of magnitude of about four times out your EV to sales. Salesforce was trading at four times out your EV to sales on Monday going into their results, mm -hmm. right? Um, so they printed results and you know, objectively they were, they were quite good. They're, like a lot of companies, they're dealing with some FX headwinds because the dollar is strengthening your date pretty meaningfully against most international currencies, which has a translation effect on their numbers, it's negative. But most investors will look through that because that's not really in their control, right? Um, and it tends to be more accounting than anything else. And so objectively, the numbers were quite good. If anything, they were pretty clear that for now, they're not seeing any macro disruption whatsoever um, on a stock that obviously was down pretty meaningfully. So, you know, as an example, you have a stock that has, you know, is down meaningfully from its November, December highs is now trading at effectively, um, I'm rounding here, of course, effectively an all-time low on out-year revenue, right, has very healthy um operating margins and free cash flow, I think did one of its actually strongest, you know, free cash flow quarters in the history of the company, uh, the April quarter, um, that has, you know, basically been babied with with a bathwater. There's been no fundamental erosion in the business. Um, it was all FX and the stock's been absolutely obliterated over the last six months and is a north of hundred billion dollar sort of global enterprise software franchise. This is not a fly by night company, it's not a single product company. Salesforce.com has navigated the dot com crash. Um, 2008, um, global financial crisis, and um, is a real company with scale and free cash flow and margins, right? Um, trading at mm -hmm. a basically historical lows on out your sales, um, you know, for what ultimately was really no meaningful change in the trajectory of the core business whatsoever. Yeah. Right. So situations like that where um, it's a it's a very healthy business with real margins and cash flow um, is expanding both. And really has seen no degradation whatsoever in the fundamentals if you really fix it on the numbers. You know, Salesforce honestly, is also honestly. benefiting. How much is Salesforce benefiting from Slack per se? Because, you know, as we see more people working from home, Slack yep. is increasing exponentially. Um, you know, us at our team at Prometheus use yep. Slack, you know, a hundred times a day. We pay for every new user we add on to our team. We pay an exponential more more for it. Yep. How much is Slack helping Salesforce out? Uh, only a little bit, only because the denominator is so big, right? So Salesforce is a, is a, effectively an enterprise software conglomerate. So they did, as mm -hmm. you're aware, they did buy Slack um, a little while ago you know, and paid a 
pretty uh, hefty price and multiple for it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in their defense, um, to be very transparent, they disclose Slack numbers every quarter still, even though they closed that, that, that transaction multiple quarters ago. So Slack is not um, big enough to the denominator to really move mm -hmm. needle either way, but they did disclose and have been disclosing it since they acquired the, the, the asset to be very transparent. It's still growing at a very, very healthy clip. Um, yeah. So Slack by itself doesn't move needle, but it's only going the right way and gives the company along with um, some other businesses, you know, sort of an extended tail call option on some of these longer term work from home dynamics. Yes. Jose, another, you know, thing that was really interesting in the markets was what happened with Cisco last week. Uh, would you mind talking a little bit about what happened over their earnings report? Sure. So what's um, pretty wild about uh, the environment when from an operating standpoint, how difficult it is, is that um, companies that are in many cases direct competitors are saying almost diametrically opposed things, you know, from each other, literally within days of, of one of the companies commenting, right? So in the case of Cisco, they reported recently and had, um, you know, Cisco is the old, obviously, um, networking company. It's been around forever, uh, sort of an old tech conglomerate, large cap, and mostly exposed to networking technology. And they had a really challenged guide or guidance, um, forward quarter guidance a few weeks ago that was meaningfully below consensus estimates. And, you know, effectively, the entire negative delta was associated with some of the production shutdowns that, um, China has been working its way through over the last several weeks, right? So for the better part of, of you know, big chunks of April and May, effectively all global production, particularly of things like technology products, was effectively shut down in China as they were doing basically, you know, regional lockdowns associated with their zero COVID policy, right? And um, so obviously, if you have any sort of finished good that you need for your product that comes out of China, you had a big problem. Uh, mm -hmm. for over the course of several weeks. So a lot of that ate into Cisco's guidance. Um, and um, even though the company was pretty adamant on their earnings call that they were not seeing any demand weakness whatsoever, and it was entirely supply, you know, supply disruption related. Um, obviously, the environment we've been in year day has been one where people are very much shoot first, ask questions later, right? Um, and so even though they were very insistent that there was no demand weakness whatsoever, in fact, their order book was quite strong, these supply constraints caused this big revenue hole for the forward quarter. Um, and, um, you know, people came off that call, even though Cisco was adamant, it was not a demand issue saying, you know, basically the sky is falling, demand is rolling, right? As mm -hmm. people have been, you know, conditioned to believe all year because the tape has been so difficult, right? Um, and the point is that as recently as uh, literally three or four business days later, there was actually um, a couple of large sales conferences going on in technology. And at those conferences, you know, multiple Cisco, both direct competitors, as well as in, in some cases, direct suppliers effectively said everything was fine, mm -hmm. right? That they're not seeing any demand weakness whatsoever. Um, and so, you know, for people to have to deal with Cisco having a, you know, pretty catastrophic move for that stock, which is historically a very low volatility, low beta stock. At one point, the stock was down you know, almost 20% after hours on that print, uh, which is an extraordinarily aberrant move for the stock. Mm -hmm. um, to literally three or four days later, direct competitors saying, you know, yeah, we're not seeing any weakness whatsoever in, in networking yeah. demand. Is, is pretty wild to have to navigate. You're seeing a, a bunch yeah. of these. There was even the week later, there was uh, a couple of days later, there was this sort of Snapchat blow up um, actually at the JP Morgan yeah. Technology Conference in Boston. You may remember what happened. They negatively pre-announced in the evening. I think it was actually last Monday 
Um, and that following Tuesday was an absolute mess for virtually all of the indices, including some of the non-technology indices or like the Dow and S&P yeah. were down you know, pretty meaningfully along with the NASDAQ. Um, Snapchat negatively pre-announced basically said that they were seeing you know, something to the effect of rapidly deteriorating conditions. Um, they had just given their guidance for the quarter literally a month prior, right? So that bred very, very scary, right? That they would so rapidly shift their opinion on their near-term business outlook, right? Um, so obviously the markets got eviscerated that next day on that Tuesday. And I think, I think the following business day, the Trade Desk, um, which is another ad tech company, uh, that Wednesday basically reiterated their June quarter, saying they were seeing you know nothing whatsoever, effectively. Yeah. So the point is that you know it, it, these are pretty good examples of how extremely difficult and idiosyncratic the market has been to navigate in the near term. Because in some cases, um, just relying on what what a company is literally saying isn't actually giving you an accurate picture of what's going on. Because they may have some idiosyncratic exposure or um, leverage to some piece of the economy that, as we mentioned earlier, is maybe getting a little bit worse or is actually turns out stable. And however that company is exposed to that sort of you know exogenous variable can really swing their PL and more importantly shift like global equity sentiment. Right. Did I you mean, the, the, after these things with Snap and Cisco having such a dramatic downturn, did you see it affect other names in the same sectors? Very much so. Um, so while in, in the cases of um, um, you know, as you, might, as you might imagine, off the Cisco miss, the entire sort of networking and networking semiconductor supply chain got hit very, very hard over the next day or so, right? Um, the Snapchat one, for whatever reason, was interpreted in a much more um, in a much more negative fashion because that subsequent day, I think it was last Tuesday, if not mistaken, you had pretty broad-based equity declines. I don't remember the magnitude off the top of my head, but multi-hundred basis point declines for all the major indices: Dow, S and P, Nasdaq. Um, so I think Snapchat was at one point down 40% that day. Most of the ad tech names that you can think of, everything from Facebook and Google all the way to the smaller cap names like a Pinterest or obviously Snap were down, you know, meaningfully, I think Pinterest was down 25 or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, um, Google and Facebook were down several hundred basis points each, um, you know, like once in five to 10 year type moves, right? Yeah. So you had like enormous sector level damage that was done. Um, but the point is that it's sort of endemic of how challenging this market has been because you're having a company like Snapchat say effectively that their business is you know, decelerating rapidly, right? Yeah. Relative to an update they gave only three or four weeks prior. And then within a couple of days, you're having a direct competitor or someone in, in the exact same space basically say, oh, actually, you know what? We're not seeing anything whatsoever. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, if you think about it, to put your head around that is really, really difficult to navigate, right? Um, yeah. So just sort of an example of how volatile and how difficult it is to actually navigate this environment, um, because taking a lot of these companies' comments at face value has actually been um, counterintuitively a little bit dangerous. Um, yeah, and we're even seeing is, some things happen where people are reporting positively and their stocks still are going down. So. Correct, right? So you, we, to your point, we've gone through you know pieces of the last few months where, um, what's the refrain? Like, you know, good is bad. Good news is bad news, right? <laughs> So bad news is really bad news. And good right? news if is you pretty miss bad. lower, the stock gets obliterated, right? But even good news is seen as bad because the perception, this probably speaks more to just investor sentiment right now being very negative, was, oh, you're just not seeing the weakness yet, right? Your business or your management team is either being naive about what's actually happening, right? Yeah. Um, or 
um, you just haven't seen this looming weakness that will happen over the next couple quarters, right? Yeah. Which is very difficult to fight, right? Because most of these companies are navigating these really, really challenging, you know, cross currents. In virtually, you know, in, in many, many cases, they're doing, um, I would argue, sort of Herculean jobs managing all these dynamics: supply chains, FX, rates, inflation, and are trying to call it like they see it. But because investor sentiment thus far has been so negative, even in the, in the cases where earnings are intact or better, which, which has existed for certain companies, um, to yeah. your point, the stocks are getting faded. Right. I think we saw. Um, I think we saw that happen to Tesla. Uh, they still they went down even after reporting good earnings. Well, I love some of your insights. It's such an interesting sector to look at and see, especially because it's probably been one of the sectors that's been hit the hardest. Yep. Uh, so seeing how you and your firm are navigating that is super interesting. And we'd love to have you on more often to discuss some of these technology and growth names. And maybe next time we can get more into some of the global uh, names that you guys are looking at. Sure. Happy to. Thanks for making time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jose. Appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. Lacoy Capital Management LP is an unregistered investment advisor. The opinions expressed herein are discussed for informational purposes only. No representations are made to the accuracy or completeness of any information. None of the opinions discussed herein should be construed to constitute investment advice. This discussion neither intends to nor constitutes an offer to sell any securities to any person, nor is it a solicitation of any person of an offer to purchase securities. Such an offer or solicitation will only be made by a confidential offering memorandum.